Hi, everyone. Welcome back to one of our uh, discussions uh, on technology. Uh, our last video, we talked about uh, architectural investments and how to know you have the right balance. Uh, today, we are lucky to have Jason Berwanger on with us to chat a little bit about data architecture and data investments. And so, you know, as I think about the startups uh, and successful small businesses win when they can trust and then use data to create competitive advantage in the marketplace. Conversely, companies that have data they can't trust or that requires heroic analysis every time somebody has a question that needs answered are doomed to implode. Much like ensuring a technology company has that right balance between feature development and architectural investments, a technology company needs to have data they can easily use and trust to make key decisions without expert knowledge on behalf of the business leader. Jason Berwanger is a technology and business polyglot who can be viewed as an expert in data engineering, analytics, finance, IT, and strategic business development. Full disclosure, I've had the pleasure of working with Jason at three different startup companies over the last four plus years. Regardless if he was reported to me or was a peer, I view Jason as an executive peer and a friend. So Jason, thank you very much for taking the time to join me today on the inaugural Leverage Loop podcast. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And uh, you know, we, have, we have definitely seen uh, probably more than our fair share of adventures in the last three years, you could say. Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, and, and all those have been, I think, really interesting opportunities and uh, great build and delivering both great building and delivering value to uh, to both customers and for the business. Um, but it's been a it's been a wild ride for sure. Sure. Well, thank you for having me on, and uh, I'm I'm honored to be your first guest. And uh, it reminds me of the last podcast we kicked off in our roof days, and I'm, I'm glad to pick up the torch here for Leverage Loop. Well, I appreciate that, Jason. You know, maybe to get started, could you give us or share a little bit about your current employer, Leapfin? You know, what services and products do they offer? And then what's your role at the company? Yeah, absolutely. So Leapfin is a, a financial data platform, and they focus on a niche problem of creating explicit financial records from like disparate system sources and integrating them back in your GL or ERP. You've seen a big change in the last 20 years where ERP used to house everything. And now you have all these individual disparate systems that are specialize in one thing and the back office and a lot of that accounting and finance data has gotten left behind. And so uh, Leafin does a great job kind of centralizing that and automate a lot of the journal entries and coming up with a concept that I like to call continuous accounting, uh, very similar to kind of continuous integration that you've seen in engineering where you get a lot of you know real-time accounting and finance data value for your business. Um, my role there is chief architect. So I work across you know key customers uh, quite a bit on our product roadmap in terms of where the product needs to go to help the most amount of folks in the long term. And I contribute to our go-to-market strategy as well. Oh, very cool. And, and how do uh, Leapfin's customers, I, I'm assuming that's accounting and you know, finance groups, how do they actually inter, like, interact or interface with the software? Yeah, so th there's really three, three groups that we help. Um, one is the engineering or data engineering folks. And so we, we have an API where they can push data to us. And that data is very, like, very raw, but gives us some sense of how you know, transactions link to one another. Um, and then we have a, a, a UI where you can get into see account reconciliations, maybe where your PSP and your revenue transactions from your bespoke software don't necessarily have a match. Maybe there's some you know, lack of determinism. So accounting loves that and those are great controls. Um, and then lastly, we integrate with uh, ERPs like NetSuite. So we actually go in and create all of the advanced journal entries and make all of the accounting records into your ledger for you and act as basically a, a sub-ledger and an anal analytics tool combined. Very interesting. I'd love to hear more as we as we go through our conversation, uh, and I think there'll be some natural opportunities for maybe to go deeper into how some of this works at, at Leapfin. Um, you know, one of the things, taking a step back, that I'd 
love to dig into a bit deeper uh, today is how you approach data architecture and investments. You know, at least two of the more recent startups we worked at together, you had a the challenge of either building or rebuilding, however you want to look at it, uh, data architecture and the concept of analytics from the ground up. Can you walk us through like how you approach those opportunities, but more importantly, you know, as you're as you're progressing through, like, what are you looking for to determine if you're even successful or not? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, you know, the first three things I to, I try to do, which I think I would call these like pre-reads, um, is I really want to get in and get an understanding of like what is what does the company need to optimize for, and there could be what they are optimizing for and what they need to, and without data, they may not know. Um, so I usually try to form an opinion there. Um, after that, I really I, I want to understand like value-wise, where are we going long-term with the customers? Um, and, and kind of where are the products or services going long-term? And then lastly, transaction lifecycle. Where is data being created and emitted and how do you get at that data? And, and then from there, we try to understand what things are you know, crucial to measuring success and what things are, are maybe orthogonal, but they're just related to the constraints of the system or old operational processes. Um, once you get that kind of, you know, uh, once you land your, your feet in one of those areas, then um, the first place I like to look at investing where there's typically a smell where there's a lot of focus on an area um, and it's aligned to the key strategy of the business, but there's more than one source of truth. And so therefore there is no source of truth. And so I think we've all seen these examples where there's an operational view that says one answer, there's a finance view that says another, um, and then maybe product has another view and, and another answer to the same question. And obviously if, if you don't have uh, a single source of truth, you don't have any truth at all. And so that's usually a great place to make a first investment. And that's usually where data engineering architecture in particular um, can add a lot of value because then you can you can basically answer all three questions that are maybe being conflated and you can answer the original question that we should have been answering all from a data warehouse. Um, but that's usually a great investment to make initially, especially when you're assessing you know, a greenfield build. Um, brownfield is obviously totally different and we, we've seen one of those recently. And that, that one I think comes with the struggle is you're not starting from zero, you're starting from maybe minus five, minus 50 where are these folks using data? Is that the right data they should be using? You have to consider how you're gonna deprecate and migrate folks over. And that takes a ton of time and effort and engineering and architecture to get that right. But at the same time, you need to be able to help these folks become their data different. So you have to address it in some sense. Um, but that's usually how I'd approach. You know, can you, can you go a bit deeper on the Brownfield example? You know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's, you almost have to start in the hole to dig out, but it's interesting, you know, Obviously, I lived through you know, some of that with you, um, but when I when I think about that process of digging out, there's so many so many areas where you could focus, and you know, honestly, they're all important, and yet you have to prioritize. Can you walk us through like how you approach? Maybe not in that specific example, but in more general terms. And we, I've seen you do it now a few times where uh, you've actually had to do a we'll call it a build, but it was really a rebuild. Figure out what what little existed. Uh, try to figure out what the actual real data should be, the real business sort of measure should be, and then building. But when you have you know multiple areas of the business potentially on fire or maybe unknowingly on fire, people don't even realize the business is burning because there's such a lack of visibility in the data. Like, how do you know where to prioritize and start first? Yeah, that's a fair question. And uh, I mean, I'll, I'll start out by saying I, I've never, I've never. Uh, overestimated what it takes to um, potentially reuse what you think you can reuse from a brownfield build. And so you, you, you want with all your heart to be able to go, there's, there's things of value out here we can reuse, um, but it always takes a lot. And, and typically it, it, it's a lot easier to re-engineer those solutions kind of from the beginning, um, at least in my experience. Now that's very anecdotal in nature, but uh, you know this as well as I have, because you, you've seen it, but 
you know, making that mistake of how much is this going to take us to kind of re-architect versus like architecturing from scratch, even in a brownfield. Um, but back to your original question, I think, you know, the, the way that you start is, you know, I, I'll, I'll use an example of, you know, real-time data versus not having data at all at a trade-off, right? We've all seen a situation where there's areas of the business where you know they're critical and they're critically aligned with the strategy and the outcome. And you, you can't measure whether or not we're getting where we need to go to without those things. And you're trading off an existing brownfield that answers the question, but maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a bit of heuristics, you know, maybe there's a bit of uh, heroics, like you mentioned in your intro. Maybe that's okay though, because that still gets you 80% of the value where other areas that are like linchpins to success that give you like a, that zero to 10 view, those are way more important to kind of, you know, rebuild or re-engineer because maybe there's no trust in the data and they're actually blocking us from making decisions. So that's the way I like to think about it in those type of terms. And like how, how much pain will this alleviate or how much offensive firepower would this get in terms of value to the business? And then that, that'll kind of indicate where we need to move next. Uh, that's uh, really interesting. And, you know, it's funny, as you were just talking, it, it reminded me of an example where I think one of the other challenges is not just, you know, what's going to have the most impact, but there's times where even the, you know, it's one thing when you have directionally right data and it's not precise, but it's at least reasonably accurate or directionally accurate. It's another when the data is actually grossly incorrect or inaccurate. And then you have the right data, but people don't believe the right data because the old data that was inaccurate tells us, tells a story that is more palatable to the business or to a leader. Um, and even in that scenario, like how do you, how do you change manage through that? I mean, again, I've seen you do it at least in one instance, but you know, I know there's places you worked at uh, prior to where we started working together, where you had to deal with some of that stuff. And uh, even in some, you know, in your current role, I'm sure there's times where you're working with clients where you're also having to walk them through their own data and helping them sort of see the reality what the data should be showing, even though it's, they think it's showing one thing, it should be completely uh, a different thing. One that's not favorable or something that somebody wants to see. Yeah, you, you actually nailed it. So one of the one of the most challenging things about Leapfin and an example is, is that once we expose all of these financial transactions and all of this truth, more often than not, it doesn't match to what folks were used to and that they had habitually used. And so it's it's like, okay, the platform's live. Now you're getting all this value, but how do you realize that value when you're running your business off of those old processes and a lot of that old data? Um, and so that is absolutely a problem that we run into quite a bit. Um, but I, I think the, the way to address, um, and, and really it's two part, one strategy and one's tactical. Um, the, the tactical piece is, is that you have a view that someone believes is right. And data lineage, in my opinion, is the only way that you get to a point where you can really understand this because that's gonna build trust. You actually walk back, where, where did your data come from? Here's the data we are asserting that's right. And then we have to kind of compare the two. Um, and once you've done that comparison and you demonstrate back, not only can we walk the answer we're looking at, but we can walk our answer back to your answer and we have your answer. So there's really three views in that sense. At that point, there's nowhere left to hide. And, and even, even the most pedantic arguments at that point kind of fall to the wayside and you say like, okay, this is the truth. Um, and I mean, I've seen an example from you know a company that you and I had worked at where it went from thinking there's potentially a problem brewing to now this is with data we know know is, is true and we trust is now the lowest conversion month in the history of the company. And, and folks didn't want to believe that was true because it was bad news and it was the angel of death syndrome. But at the same time, we, we knew it was true because we could check some, we could walk it back and we could even walk it back to the data that we knew was wrong and, and critique why we knew it was wrong in terms of the cohorting. 
you know, in, in data, data, you bring up data integrity. Like it feels like an ever-present problem. Honestly, we've seen uh, we've seen that at late stage startups. We've seen that early stage startups. Um, you know, at, at all stages of company and technology. Uh, but you seem to have a knack at preventing those things from creeping into an organization you're part of. Like, how do you what, like what approach do you take to if, especially in a greenfield scenario, to avoid that data integrity problem manifesting itself? Um, you know, and maybe just touching on how have you then taken on a brownfield scenario? How have you how have you introduced data integrity and data integrity so that it's not a you know hero- I mean, there was an example I, I think of in our head where or my head where. You and I were working on a Friday, I think at the company you were referencing, uh, to prove that data, the data was actually right. Like the, the new data that we had generated was telling the right story, and even though it was an unfavorable story versus the old data that was telling a favorable story that was just dead wrong. Um, but, but outside of that, that sort of heroic approach of let's, let's manually walk it back, like how do you, what mechanisms do you build to make it easier or make it intelligent to actually reconcile? Maybe it's the way I'm, I want to say it. Yeah, no, that 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 that's a great question. Um, and the way I like about think about this is when I think about integrity, I think about virtues, and you can kind of lay that into three components. You have you know excess, you have deficiency, and then you have you know being virtuous. And obviously, what what that looks like from an engineering and a data perspective is is that you know the 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 deficiency is that we we have no tests, we have no mechanisms to know that our data is right. Um, excess is we we move so slowly in generating new data that we're we're never answering the questions the business needs to answer. And so the other folks are going and answering them in different ways, even though we have the most you know, secure tested process and we know for sure the data is right. In the middle somewhere is the, is, is the virtue. Um, and that's definitely the most balanced and almost the moderated approach where we're checksumming the right things and we're, we're having the right tests that are being you know, ran in terms of CI behind the scenes. So that way, when we're looking at that data, we at least know what we've tested it for and what we haven't. Um, and so like, I, I use that example in those words intentionally in the sense that, you know, you could test for all of the things you need to test for, or you could test for the things that you really need to answer the question you're answering today. And I think knowing where that line is and having folks know where that line is or use the data is critical. Because then you get into this, this is more of a gold and silver type of a layer, but your gold layer is very much, yeah, any type of answers you're going to get around like state performance or state PLs, that's going to be great data. Um, anytime you get into maybe more zip code type of data, as an example, you, we may not we may not necessarily know if that's accurate because there could be the you know, physical address, there could be moves, it could be a slowly changing dimension, and we haven't built the data in a way to answer slowly changing dimensions where folks have moved within a state, let's say. Um, but those mechanisms are important. To, uh, you have to have some of them, and you have to make sure that they're in place because you don't want to completely be completely deficient. Uh, but in a greenfield, obviously, a lot of these things are going from zero to one, and so. You can't test your way into success in some sense. So you, you don't want to be you know excessive about it. Um, in terms of the brownfield, um, you know th- that one that one is, is particularly challenging because of the opinions that are already formed on some of the existing data and the processes. Um, and and the best way that I have found is is reconciliation tooling, where you actually expose the result of some of those tests to answer some of those questions in advance. Um, it's almost like a show your work, and it's something that we've adopted at Leapin with some customers as well, where. You know, you can actually walk back transactions and use a dashboard to say, hey, I want to just filter the data by this month and, you know, this type of product. And I want to see, you know, in the old cohort, what would it be in the new cohort, what would it be? And then you can pick individual transactions. And if folks want to audit them, they can. And almost give them, you know, the additional mechanism because a lot of it is of building their trust in addition to us thinking through mechanisms of building trust. But 
especially business folks aren't going to have a lot of visibility to that. Um, but I do think as a broader point, it's, it's great to find ways to expose those things. Cause I think there's a, there's a, a ton of similarities and, and a ton of the same structures in terms of mechanistic CI tests. And then what a controller or an accountant or a finance person, or even a data person would think is like a checksum or a financial control that they use from a compliance perspective. And if you design them right, you can meet the needs of both of those things. And, and so if somebody's sitting watching this, uh, this discussion right now and they're, they're asking themselves, what, what checksum or what reconciliation mechanism could I build? Could you give an example at a, you know, a very simplistic example of what one would look like, you know, from a, from a data perspective? Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my favorite one, I, I would call the, uh, the accounting identity. And so uh, in accounting, there's a concept where if you have a revenue and deferred revenue, that must always equal, you know, your cash and receivables and the other parts of the transaction, depending on your industry. And that's going to be universally true no matter what. Um, and so one, one thing that I like to do is say, okay, why don't we have a bill that looks at the daily balance of transactions that you can obviously then aggregate and that will tie back to your EDW and your financials. And then from there, you always know where you're in balance and where you aren't in balance. And so that's a great way to start is understanding your transaction lifecycle. What are things that should be universally true or should balance to something else? And then expose that mechanism uh, from some of your reporting, some of your CI and engineering. Um, and actually, I'm sure you remember this, but from you know our, our first company where we worked at together, that was one of my first projects was to come up with that concept of daily financials as a part of IP IPO preparation. And at first it was an ERP mechanism and it's a manual. Then it became some data engineering tests and you know some CSV results here with accounting. And ultimately the software engineers were then curious why we were all coming to them saying, hey, there was something in the billing system that was off. And then they ended up building tests into their code. And so we built a lot of value up the chain by kind of sharing those type of reconciliation concepts and making them ap applicable to software engineering, data engineering, our controls and compliance, and then our accounting folks. Um, but that's, that, that's where I would always start is the, your transaction lifecycle and then figuring out what do you know with certainty should be true and then check something that and then building from there. And so maybe another way of thinking of it or saying it would be, you know, in the example of a, of a policy, you know, I'm using insurance as an example, policy management and order system. Um, you know, there's a part of the, the system that's actually taking, uh, taking requests for a consumer and trying to bind the policy and creating records uh, in your first order system, you know, in your production system for those records, taking the, the totals from there and then comparing those totals with totals in your actual accounting system, potentially then comparing those totals to totals that if you were binding policies on different carrier platforms, Yep, what, right. what, you know, the, and then adding up the, what did the carrier platform say were bound? What did we think were bound? What did the accounting system say was bound? Um, and making sure those account, those numbers reconcile or taking the same number, like in an accounting system where it's uh, maybe it's a, you know, revenue and expenses in one, one dimension that you know, gets you to your, your overall sort of profit loss number, but then taking a different dimension that's maybe not expenses revenue, it may be per market or per exactly. a different thing, adding those up, which may be a separate, a separate uh, uh, data source that, that tracks some of that data, which all should still tie out and adding it all up to make sure that the ultimate number matches the ultimate number you had on the other side. And if it doesn't, then you know you have a problem. Yeah, you nailed it. Completeness and accuracy is easy to, easy to say. And sure, it's like we can check some of this total system against this total system, but it's, all right, where are our policies? How have we build against those policies? Have we actually build enough against those? And having tests in between there can really help you understand if we recognize enough receivable accounting. And then from a software perspective and a data engineer perspective, can we trust 
that the data we're emitting has captured all the bills that we should be generating. And they're all answering a similar question in that sense. And that same mechanism can really help bring that all together. You know, we, we've talked a bit now about greenfield and brownfield development. I just want to pause for a second. Like, honestly, there's nothing, there may be a connotation around brownfield, which is like crappy, right? Like, uh, or, or gnarly, but a lot of really successful companies wind up out, you know, out kicking or out, out kicking their coverage and wind up actually getting behind the curve on what the data integrity needs look like, what data looks like because of how successful they've been. And so like a brownfield scenario may be one where you need to come in and clean up, but the, the, it may be for all the right reasons, not the wrong ones. Um, and I'm curious, like you, in your current role at LeapBen, it sounds like you work with a lot of both small businesses, medium-sized businesses, super successful businesses that have sort of gone on, on, on hyperbolic growth curves. Uh, and then probably some that are on, on a more slow burn. What are some of the, the common mistakes a, 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 a startup or a small business makes in its journey uh, that you see a lot of that, you know, a business owner or a, uh, an executives watching this podcast that they can learn from to try to avoid that mistake themselves? Yeah, that's fair. Um, you know, I think a couple things come to mind. Uh, I think the most prevalent is, I would call it not knowing what inning you're in. Um, you know, I've seen situations where, you know, something like Kafka was proposed where we need, you know, we need real-time data. We need tooling to be able to pipe in, you know, asynchronously real-time data or as close to real-time as we can get in. Um, but at the same time, I, I think that a lot of times some of those investments can be a mistake and it's on an infinite time scale, they're not a mistake typically. But in the, what am I doing this year or this, you know, in this quarter, a lot of times I think it is a mistake because if you, you can't answer a critical question about something that you're trying to measure and you're now trying to go real time answering another question, then you really have to value those two things against each other and ask yourself, am I investing in the right thing? And I think that's, that's probably the most common type of uh, mistake that I see is either, you know, that overinvestment too quickly in something or maybe not investing, uh, you know, in, in data in general or something specifically that we need to measure. And, and if so, if I'm a, if I'm a, uh, an executive or a small business owner, what, which what action should I be taking on the data front to make sure my teams aren't falling into that trap of, of making an investment now that they shouldn't be making, or, you know, maybe drifting into a technology that uh, there's curiosity in, but manufacturing a reason to implement it versus letting the business case sort of dictate it. Like if I'm that executive sitting in that chair, what am I, what should I be looking for and how should I be helping my team avoid that from a data perspective? Yeah, I think I think if you're if you're an exec, I think the smell you're gonna the smell is the one we referred to earlier, which is you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna hear and see different answers to the same question, which I think that's gonna tell you that you potentially have a problem somewhere in your architecture, or maybe that you lack the architecture. So I think that's one smell that you can take away. Um, what you do with that, um, I think at that point that that's that's your catalyst to kind of review your budget and review where you're investing your time and energy in terms of. Hey, I'm spending all of these dollars in my operational growth, my sales growth, and my engineering departments. But if, if you can't measure those things, you can't manage them. Obviously, Bezos was was famous for um, I forget who the author was, but there's a famous author who I think was, was talked about. Um, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, and it's it's kind of been that mantra that Amazon marched by. It's one that I've always firmly believed in. Um, and so I think like the the question, if you're a business owner, you got to ask yourself is is that you know what's the opportunity cost of me not knowing some of these things. And then with that, it's now how do I actually manage these things, not in terms of, you know, a one-time analysis, but how do I answer these questions permanently so I can move on to other problems with my business? Because um, if you underinvest, a lot of times that's what happens as you get into, 
the heuristics or heroics and you're spending a lot of payroll dollars, you know, not getting what you really needed to answer in the first place, rather than actually investing in the architecture that you needed up front to answer that question now and going forward and then moving on to other things and adding other values. That's really interesting. And it's, it probably introduces a point now where I want to try to pivot. Like, I think up to this point, we've had a great conversation around compliance uh, and you know fixing data and making sure the integrity of data is where it should be. Um, but be, beyond that, how do you, like I, I've seen you and you've, you've had a demonstrated ability to use data as a competitive advantage and inform business, you know, multiple businesses we've been a part of, of unforeseen opportunities. You know, example of this at the, one of the more, uh, at the actually most recent company we worked at, you proactively identified a sales ops opportunity and marketing gap that was causing the business to actually leave money on the table and underserving very specific sets of cohorts of customers. Um, do you think this mindset of is one a data leader needs to have of looking for opportunities and sort of pivoting, um, or is it something that's more broad to an entire company? I honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at it as ors. I would look at it as an ants. Um, and and what I mean by that is like you could have a data leader, um, and and they could absolutely identify these opportunities. But if the rest of the company, particularly if the leadership, isn't aligned, um, the value of predicting those things and finding those opportunities is is, is either greatly diminished, or at the very least, you're not taking full advantage of them. Um, conversely, if you have a data leader who 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 doesn't have that trait and 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 isn't out looking for those gaps and finding those opportunities. But leadership wants them to, then that the, the company's not going to be able to capitalize on thing, those things. So I, I firmly believe that that's an and for it to be fully taken advantage on on both sides. Um, and I think there's there's nothing that takes the the wind out of a, a data leader sales like seeing a team work their butts off to find you know all of this decision support and a lot of this offensive type of value finds just to see them not taken full advantage of um, because you, know, you, you you essentially got all the hard work done and it's like the easy thing which should be. Like, how do we take full advantage of this? And then to not see that cross the finish line is, is I think, tough for teams to see. Yeah, and it probably also uh, is, a, is a really strong reminder for, uh, you know, leaders, executives, uh, even technology leaders to, to keep in mind that uh, data, having data that you can trust ultimately leads to some of these offensive opportunities. But it's really hard to go think offensively when you're constantly playing defense and you're forced to keep going back and, either proving out th things that, you know, answering questions, proving out things are right or not right in the data. Um, all those activities wind up, it's almost a very, it's very similar to trying to fix a software engineering architecture and having, you know, bug after bug after bug after bug crippling your business. And then somebody asks you, well, what's the next enhancement you want to put out for your consumer? I can't think of the enhancement because I'm too busy putting out fires. And so I'm guessing from a data side as well, uh, it's equally important to, to get the house at least quickly in order so that you can have all your leaders in the organization, but especially your data leaders, helping identify some of those, those, those opportunities. Yeah, exactly right. And, um, and honestly, that, that's the fun part, right? Like that's, that's when I feel like, especially in your and I's paths, when we had the most fun, where we, we had done the hard work of getting to data we uh, were trusting, and then we were able to make some decisions and make some bets based on some frankly, great data and, you know, a little bit of the lean forward, but obviously things are probabilities. It's not, you know, it's not a yes or a no. It's a, it's a high probability of success based on the data we have and let's go take action. And those are, that's the most fun for the teams. That's the most fun that you and I had. Um, and obviously I think that that just energizes the rest of the business to know, yeah, we made a bet best based on the best data we had. Now imagine we contrast that against, you know, oh, I had a gut feeling. 
Well, at least if you, you did that based on data that you trusted and you played some offense, even if you didn't win as much as you thought you would, or even if you made a bet and it didn't pan out, at least you did it based on, you know, the best data that you had in that sense versus, you know, I, I just went based on my gut, even though we had all these data investment, because then it's both an insult to your data investments. Um, and it's an insult to the rest of the team because you know, we, we did all this, this work and all this effort just to make a bet based on what, based on nothing, based on pixie dust. Yeah. Well, no, I think it's absolutely right. Like the, where you want to make your bets has to be informed by data. And if you're just going off gut feel or using bad data, well, you may be, you may be right because, because you got lucky. Like there's a difference between being right because you did everything right versus getting lucky. And it's the same on a flip side, you know, when you're talking like a tech technical stack and something really bad happens, right. Uh, and you have to, you know, go into like a you know, five alarm fire drill. Um, say you have a data integrity problem that winds up costing you a million dollars, right? Like that's a really bad outcome as a business, especially a small business. That's a potentially a crippling outcome. Um, but then there's a, you either have bugs. There's one I remember back at uh, two or three companies ago, actually, where um, we had a bug, we immediately caught it. The bug could have been a million to $10 million bug, but because we caught it literally in a couple of days, it wound up being a $10,000 problem, not right. a million or $10 million problem. The severity of the problem actually doesn't change. It's the same severity. We just, the outcome just, we happen to get lucky. And I think from a data perspective, I think the same thing's true. Like, you know, you may take bad data and get to a right outcome. You just got lucky. Like you may also take bad data and get to a really terrible outcome. Very rarely will you take good data and get to a terrible outcome. You may take, take make a bet with good data or bad, sorry, make a bet with good data and get to a, a either met outcome or a, Hey, we, 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 we had a hypothesis, the hypothesis didn't pan out and the experiment failed. Very rarely do you actually get to a, a business crippling outcome by using good data to make a decision. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you nailed the frame up on those business cases. That's, that's how I, I kind of work through this with the customers. And that, that's how I've worked through this in every role I've had as it's the opportunity cost of not knowing that is the reason why you make a lot of these investments. And I think finding those examples in, in an industry or some sort of a baseline and then asking yourself, like, what do I not know about how many chargebacks that I'm having and how often I win or lose them and how often chargebacks are happening? Um, and if you don't have any data on there and you don't, you don't know what you don't know, that's a pretty dangerous place to be for your engineering team, for your data, for your finance and accounting folks, for your auditors. Um, and there's a, there's a destruction of value that can happen, you know, in a, in, in a novel way for all of those groups if you don't invest the data in that sense. Um, but it also makes it really hard to value data and build those business cases because it's, it's a lot less about direct value and it's more indirect and opportunity you know, kind of created. And, and that's, that's tough for any executive to make those, uh, those investments because of, you know, it's, it's not first party return on investment in that sense. Well, Jason, that's all the questions I had, but you know, you've been such a great guest. I just want to make sure, did you have any questions that I can answer for you? Yeah. So I, um, I wrote down one I've been kind of pining over a bit and, um, you know, I think one thing we've seen is there's there's a obviously a, a, a ton, if not you know, a disproportionate amount of our of businesses generate data within relational databases. Um, we've seen the you know up and coming of the graph architecture, um, both on the API side with like GraphQL and being able to kind of a new query language to pull things out like uh, with that from uh, Meta innovating and, and uh, building some of the technology. And then you also have a, a ton of folks moving from relational databases to more like explicit you know, relationships and actual, you know, information in a graph architecture. Um, 
So I, I'd love to get your take, um, especially with your experience, you know, building tech teams and tech from scratch and being the CTO of multiple companies in terms of how would you, if you're building, you know, a B2B, you know, um, you know, SaaS company or B2B data product, how would you take a look at architecture from scratch and almost look between relational and, and graph architecture and almost create a little mini value structure? It's a great question. Um, taking us maybe a step back, the, the approach I would take, and this is something actually Dan Mangus at the CTO at Root, I thought did and thought really well uh, about, which was, uh, and something I've, I've carried forward as well at, at other places you and I have worked. Um, focus on the problem you're trying to solve, but ultimately keep it simple, right? There's, if you were to draw a sort of two dimensions, right? Where you have problem complexity and solution complexity, right? Ultimately, we, the box you want to live in is where the, the architecture or the solution is simple, but the problems it solves are highly complex, right? That's the box you want to live in. The box you don't want to live in is you're solving simple problems with vastly complex architecture. Um, and, you know, with every architecture and, and regardless if it's, you know, data storage architecture, we're using, you know, a, a, a graph data architecture versus, you know, we'll call it a relational database scheme. Uh, or it's building a monolith versus microservices, right? There's pros and cons to both things that each, each end of the spectrum do really well. And what you want to try to do is find the sort of the sweet middle ground that ultimately solves 80, 90% of the complexity you're trying to solve by keeping the, the, the architecture, certainly for the consumer to understand whatever, your, whatever external APIs or external uh, interface that they get to work with, whether it's a UI interface or APIs as an interface. Um, you want to keep it as simple and straightforward as you can, but also on the in, sort of behind the curtain, as easy as and consistent as possible for engineering team to maintain so that you can rapidly innovate, rapidly build, um, but get the right benefits without taking on the cost. And so like using microservice as an example, I think this is a, a great one for the broader software engineering in, uh, uh, industry. Right. There's a pull at times for engineering teams to want to jump to building the most granular microservice architecture known to man for you know solving you know very small domain worth of problems. And what you the benefit you get is you get these really small logical services that are really tight and well maintained, and uh, you know each one is easy to understand, etc. The cost is on the infrastructure side. Now you have all these APIs that proliferate or propagated around your organization, um, but you may have an engineering team of ten. Well, now you have ten people that every time a change needs to happen, you may have to go through and change four or five APIs every time because of all these sort of interconnectivity. You want taking on a huge burden with the microservice architecture. That's not, you know, the the value you're getting from it isn't commensurate with the cost you're paying. Yeah, the scale doesn't justify the yep. investment of the problem with ten engineers and ten APIs. Yep. Yeah, and, and in the reverse case, like a monolith works really great when you have that really small domain, really small team. The problem is when you get to a team of hundreds, maybe thousands of engineers, and you have, you know, multiple we'll call it business domains. You know, think of insurance for example. You have auto, and you have home, and you have uh, renter's insurance and you have wife and you, you keep paying them on. Now, all of a sudden your monolith, the reverse happens, right? The, all the benefit you're getting from it early on with low cost, all the costs now start accruing that far now outpace the benefits you got from it and vice versa, where the, the microservice architecture in that, in that early example, the costs far outweighed the benefits in that, are, that, are, you know, that scale or maturity of business 
the microservice architecture now, the co- the benefits far outweigh the costs. And so I would say like looking back at, I like say now going to the original question of graph, a graph sort of data architecture versus, um, you know, relational one, A, like what are the problems you're trying to solve with it? B, are the benefits you're getting from it and the cost you're paying for it are the costs outweighing the, or the benefits outweighing the costs. Uh, if there's a complexity cost to be paid by the engineering team or through your customers, is that is that complexity actually paying for itself? Um, and is are the benefits so far outpacing the the cost that it's it, it doesn't matter? Like it's it's the right choice to make, or are you seeing that the costs are being you know are far outpacing the benefits? And if you look at it and go, well, I I'd architect it a different way. We want to pay most of these costs, and we get those benefits, if not more. Well, then that's how I would make my determination on what the right architecture is. Um, and this is true. Like one of the things I, I wrote an article about uh, about a month ago now was uh, some of the engineering principles I use. A lot of teams that I've I've led uh, over the last five, actually six seven years, even back to Amazon. And my, my sort of my top three tenets, if you will, are keep it simple, stupid. Um, you ain't gonna need it, so don't build it. Uh, and uh, try not to repeat yourself. But in that order, like if I had to choose just one, it's keep it simple. I'd rather solve really complex problems with simple solutions because anyone can understand the simple solution. And the, the sort of tax, the mental tax of having to support, you know, something that's pretty simple is way lower than a, you know, supporting a, a crazy complex architecture that yields maybe little benefit. So hope that, I hope I answered your question. Yeah, it's helpful. It's um, I, I have a pretty good feel on one side, the customer side. I think that you know, from a graph perspective, we can save a lot of that you know computation compared to you know a high storage cost, which is you know high storage is cheap compared to a relational database. I think those make a lot of sense. But I think you're right. There's a lot of considerations we need to make with our internal engineering team and like how we want to build long term and if that complexity makes sense. And I think if you combine the two of those, you know, what impact that has on customers and potential future prospects, and what impact that has on our ability to innovate. I think at that point now I've got a value structure I can go take away. Yeah. And another, I think, interesting thing is if you think about the boundary between, we'll call it internal architectural challenges or internal engineering uh, challenges, and then externally, you know, how consumers use the solutions, right? If you've, uh, if you've obfuscated that behind, we'll call it an API for the broader term, uh, broad terminology, meaning like the, what the customer sees, they're, they're oblivious to how the internal architecture exactly. actually like, works. Well, the good news there is then no matter what you're doing to solve that problem, whether it's a graph architecture uh, or a relational data structure, if the consumer, your, your consumer is, a, you know, uh, they're, they're ignorant to it. They don't know what's actually being done on the covers, all the better, because then it allows you to potentially have also, you, again, going back to that monolith microservice example, if you had a whole monolith powering that, as long as the monolith was doing what it's supposed to do, the consumer is none the wiser. They're happy. They're happy with the product you're giving them, et cetera. And then over time, if you say, okay, the model has to evolve into more of a service-oriented architecture, and then over time, that service-oriented architecture has to evolve into a microservice architecture, that could all happen without the consumer ever knowing it. And you know, the problem you're solving then are twofold. You have consumer problems that you need to solve in one, in one sense, but then you have engineering productivity and business uh, agility problems you need to solve with the internal architecture, and you can do that separately. Yeah, it makes sense. And you... you... You know, at that point, you're, you're coupled to whatever you've exposed to the customer to keep them used to the interface that you've exposed to them. But then as long as you keep that consistent, you can do whatever you need to do behind the scenes, provided you continue to meet those SLAs for them. Well, Jason, any other questions you have before we wrap up? No, this was uh, a ton of fun and uh, a good throwback session and happy to do it anytime. 
Well, thank you very much, Jason. And you know, for those that are watching, we'll do a couple more of these sessions. Uh, the next one will actually be on innovation, uh, basically over the horizon innovation with uh, Andrew Root. So be on the lookout for that one uh, sometime next month.